If you're a healthcare practitioner and want to learn more about how to develop more targeted treatments for your patients using genetic testing, then Bioceuticals DNA Testing in Practice is for you. This 10-module professional development course presented by Dr. Denise Furness is designed to help you unlock your patient's health potential. You'll learn how to move away from the trial and error approach that so typically leads to patient dissatisfaction to a targeted clinical model defined by decision-making that distinguishes those patients most likely to benefit from a given treatment from those who will not. For more information on the DNA Testing in Practice 10-module program, visit the Bioceuticals website or contact your Bioceuticals sales representative. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Alicia Habgood. Alicia is a Sydney-based naturopath and yoga teacher. Her interest lies in autoimmune disease, namely gut, thyroid and rheumatoid arthritis, but her specific focus is on helping women overcome breast implant illness, BII. Alicia's treatment encompasses not just the unique physical aspects of the disease, but the underlying emotional and psychological impacts of breast implant illness. Alicia is passionate about raising global awareness of this growing issue in both women and their practitioners. Welcome to FX Medicine. Alicia, how are you? Hi. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm really good. My pleasure. But we're talking about a bit of a political hot potato here. Breast implant illness, what is it? Yeah, look, breast implant illness, it's it's an unusual one. It's a new one, um, I suppose, to many practitioners. And uh, breast implant illness, it can be described as or defined as a period of sickness affecting multiple systems within the body. And this is caused by silicon or saline breast implants. And the illness varies greatly from person to person, so it can range from you know two or three symptoms to a, a list of of twenty or so issues. And uh, I, I see you know, how how do women get breast implant illness, or how do these implants you know, cause illness? Um, why do they cause illness? It can be a combination of things, and I, I see it as usually either a chemical toxicity and heavy metals and viral infections, uh, usually laying dormant or we become more susceptible to catching these viral infections such as EBV and CMV, uh, or it can just be one or the other, so the heavy metals and chemicals or the viral infection. And these implants, um, we we see that they are endocrine disrupting and they can cause immune dysregulation. Mm. They they contain these silicon polymers that are called siloxane monomers, which mimic estrogen. So ultimately, they're xenoestrogens. And um, the heavy metals are also endocrine disrupting. So, um, and this is this is not just the silicon breast implants. This is the saline breast implants as well. So they're not yeah. excluded yeah. Uh, because the the silicon and the saline, both the shells of, of these implants contain these siloxanes, and the implant that the saline implants are usually more likely to grow 
uh, mold within the implants themselves due to faulty valves or uh, on wow. the shell of the implants. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the silicon, uh, we can see that they also can grow biofilm, which can be bacterial or fungal in nature. But both of these implants, they carry their own risks. Mm. Uh, now, forgive my very old man memory, but I remember, um, you know, the issue with DuPont, uh, Dow Corning, um, these implants. Can you take us through, like, who are the culprits here? Is it just those implants? And and forgive me also, is it just the coating or the contents themselves as well? So Dow Corning or DuPont Dow Corning, uh, they were a brand through the 1980s and 1990s uh, that manufactured silicon breast implants. And they had a class action lawsuit against them, uh, people claiming that Dow Corning's silicon implants cause systemic health problems and these claims were first centered on breast cancer, but then they migrated to a range of autoimmune diseases, including lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and various neurological problems. This led to numerous lawsuits between 1984, ending in 1998. It's a multi-billion dollar class action settlement. Uh, as a result, Dow Corny went into bankruptcy, um, and that ended in about 2004. So the contents and, and the coating, both of these things can be toxic it, and, it, and they were toxic. So it wasn't just the coating, it wasn't just the internal filling of these implants. And we find that these women were having issues regardless. Uh, but these uh, Dow Corning implants were found to rupture easier than uh, the other brands in the market at the time and that the silicon was implicated in causing these diseases. So it can be it can be both. Um, it's not just one or the other. It's not just the, the silicon or the saline. It's not just the shell or the, the filling. So both, both of those materials are detrimental to our health. Right. And how did BII become a focus for you in clinical practice? Well, about six years ago, I myself had breast augmentation surgery. And prior to surgery, I was very healthy. Um, I was always interested in maintaining my health, a balanced diet. I did exercise most days of the week. I had energy, no major health issues. I, I, I felt good. Then four months post-surgery, I started to experience my first symptoms, which was chronic fatigue, um, extreme fatigue at the time. That was the most debilitating for me, and I had a, I had a whole host of other issues that ranged from weight gain, um, difficulty concentrating, so cognitive issues. I developed a post-nasal drip and sinusitis that uh, didn't leave me the entire time I had breast implants. Uh, lots of gut dysfunction, constipation, bloating, uh, developed chronic anemia, uh, developed hypothyroidism. Wow. Uh, I had inflamed lymph nodes. I had a lowered immunity, so I'd catch every cold that came my way. And multiple chemical sensitivity was a big one for me. I, I couldn't walk into a room that someone had sprayed perfume. It would just set my sinuses off, give me the worst migraine. Um, and I had this extreme uh, tightness in my thoracic and uh, scapula. Uh, all of the muscles just seized up around that area. And I was in constant pain. And so I had all, had all these 
these symptoms and I really didn't understand where they were coming from and why. So I, I did the rounds. I went to numerous GPs, had copious amounts of blood testing done, MRI, CT scan. Um, I was on medication like corticosteroids and I, oh I did God. all the mainstream. Yeah, I did all the mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> did all the mainstream stuff and it, it, obviously that didn't work for me. Then I tried TCM chiropractors, naturopaths, spiritual healers, uh, everything, I pretty much tried it. And the only thing that really gave me a moderate amount of relief was making a huge and drastic extreme change in my diet. And at this point, I had to significantly reduce my hours at work and I practically didn't have a social life. So I was pretty desperate and did my own research, came across the Gerson therapy therapy and that's something that I followed for um, a number of weeks, and then I was a vegan for three years. And I did daily coffee enemas and infrared saunas, and so I was. It, it was a pretty drastic lifestyle change. Yeah, um, it was. It was pretty big. It was quite debilitating, really, and, and limiting in, in the things that I could do with my life. And my energy did increase from that, and a few of my symptoms reduced. And but I still felt like a, a shadow of the former healthy self that I was. Mm. You know, that I knew that I was before. So I started to listen to that little voice in my head that kept telling me that maybe it's my breast implants. So I did some research. I came across hundreds of other women online with similar symptoms. And that's when I started studying. I found my passion for natural health and helping others. And it took me about 12 months to really come to terms with having to remove my breast implants. Um, you know, ultimately, it was a self-image fear and an issue because why did I get them in the first place? Of course, to make myself feel better about my body that ultimately you know, didn't, didn't love. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to change that, to change mm. my appearance um, and how different I am now six years later, but <laughs> it's all a good thing. Yeah. Can I ask you, like the medical axiom is common things happen commonly. Post-nasal drip, weight gain, thyroid issues, anemia, they're all common things. It's no wonder to me that no clinician went, oh, it's your breast breast implants, because they're all Mm. sort of their own separate little entity. Indeed, you can get people who specialise in weight loss, specialise in thyroid, et cetera, Mm. this little voice. Do you find that that's this common denominator for these women who go, but what could it be that? Like, how do they eventually realise it's BII? That's that's the tricky part because the, these symptoms are so common. Like you said, yeah. they they show up in in so many other diseases, and that's that's the problem. Like you said, no wonder any other practitioner go, oh no, it's this and it's that, and it's not not your breast implants because there is has been no no research linking breast implant illness to all of these issues, all of these symptoms. So it does make it difficult and. Ultimately, I think a lot of women do figure it out themselves. Like, like you said, they have this voice. Mm, okay, I was pretty good before. I didn't have any health issues or nothing major was you know, was coming up. And then now, three months, six months, two years later, I have a, a whole uh, list, a lo- whole laundry list of, of issues. But that's the other difficult thing is because whilst I develop symptoms four months after, some people don't develop them for years. Right. So that makes it even more difficult to put two and two together because they might think, well, I had these for years and I felt fine, so it can't be my implants. And then, you know, any mainstream medicine practitioner is going to tell you, no, 
it's not your implants. So it does make it very difficult. So as a patient, uh, even as a practitioner, you really have to listen to that little voice. I find intuition is is a key. Yeah, figuring it out. And and you know, call me physically based, but I like you know people name it as intuition. I wonder if you're picking up on other cues and things like that, like your memory. This this oh, we talk about the little voice, but some little subconscious cue that you might go, could it be that? To me, it's more like mm. the questioning mind. Really, what a good practitioner should be. Is, uh, you know, have I really honed into the correct diagnosis? Have I really honed into the correct treatment? Is, could there be something else that could help my patient? These are the good practitioners that I find out mm. there. And I'm so glad that you're one of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. But so yeah. is, is BII a recognised illness? No, right. it's not. Right. That's, that's the problem. So it's we're not. in for another chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not recognised and there is no definitive test that you can, that is currently on the market in the present day where you can go, we've, we've got this test and we'll do this and then we'll tell you if you're a breast implant illness. It just does not exist. And that's a huge part of the problem too because it's not like we've got you know, rheumatoid arthritis, you can go and have uh, antibodies tested and you know, your rheumatoid factor will potentially show up. It just you know, there's no such thing. So that makes it difficult. Yeah. What about these um, siloxane monomers though? Is there any way of checking to see if they're systemic throughout the body and maybe causing, um, you know, let's say for instance, somebody experiences pain, a weird pain in, in a distal location in their body. Is there any way to test for these? Not as far as I'm aware, not right. at this stage, no. And I've looked and I've I've checked and at the moment, no. There just there just isn't testing available out there because I think it mostly is the lack of awareness. Yeah. You know, it's it's that's the problem. I think once this becomes um the forefront of people's mind when they're actually practicing, when they're when they've got their patient in front of them and they tell them they have implants and you know, then people are become are gonna become more aware. This is then hopefully these testings will be developed and then we'll be able to to find out these answers. But at the moment those just don't exist. Gotcha. And do you find that the symptoms experienced by these various hundreds of women online, do they fall into these common categories, the immune, um, the the brain fog, the fatigue, that sort of thing? Um, Often, yes. Yeah. But again, it's vast and varied. That's that's another, you know, difficult issue we find with actually diagnosing or uh, figuring figuring out that it's the implants is because you know, I've got a whole heap of symptoms I can rattle off to you and they could be associated to anything. Yeah. And, um, you know, but but like you said, a lot of it is immune dysfunction. A lot of it is endocrine disruption. So it, the symptoms do relate back to those, those two issues. Gotcha. And so from your experience, what was the major things that you learned? I would, imag- I would imagine not in a small way would be um, psychological growth. On a personal level, I suppose the the best thing that came out of my experience was actually finding my purpose and becoming a naturopath. Mm. And I'm very thankful for that. And ultimately, I'm actually really thankful that I developed all these issues because now I I can help other people, um, especially when it comes to breast implant illness. But I also learned how important it is to listen to your to your own body and to to tune in yeah. to your instincts yep. and to that little voice you know that, that's telling you this is an issue. Because I I really do believe. A lot of the time, our patients will 
know what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. They they will tell you. And and one of my issues when I was first experiencing the symptoms six years ago when I did see a naturopath and I was treated by her, uh, she was very experienced. Um, and I remember I, I said to her one day, hey, I think it could be my implants. I'm, I'm not sure. And it's the only common denominator. And she did dismiss the idea at the time. Uh, she thought, no, well, it's stemming from gut, stemming from this and, and all these other issues. And whilst she may have been acting from her experience and what she learned, um, and those are very valid things to to draw to draw on, um, I, I do feel in this instance she sort of failed to truly listen yeah. to her patient. Yeah. And that's that's a downfall for for any uh, any any issue. I any suppose. practitioner. Yeah, yeah, any practitioner, and I think that that's what I really learned is so important to to listen to your patient, really listen rather than diverge onto a different path based on education and experience, and you know those things are important, but trying to combine those all of those factors and staying open and present with your patient is is really important and, and key, I believe. Such a great message. And like we we all do it. We all I have failed in instances um, to really tune in to what's happening with the patient in front of me. And yes, it's part of life, absolutely. But when you've got something that's as common and systemic as this is, and then the problem is that we go down these common culprit treatment pathways, you know, things that we are feel confident about, the gut, you know, all that sort of thing. Mm. And we have failed the the antecedent. We have failed to identify the actual cause, which is the whole premise of naturopathy, really. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely with you on that. So methods of assessing BII, given that it's not a recognized disease, how do you pick up the disease? How do you identify that it is that and not allergies or thyroid problems from stress or something like that. That's the tricky part. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would imagine that the only real positive identification is to remove the breast implants and see if the patient recovers, but then what if they don't? And some don't. They actually, some really do not cover, uh, recover. So I suppose when it comes to a practitioner assessing how can they find out if their patient has breast implant illness. Firstly, we see that there are a number of things that will predispose people to actually getting sick because, you know, Mm. why do some women feel completely fine, have no health issues and they have breast implants and then others, they have issues, you know? Why is that? Well, it does come down to certain genotypes are more susceptible. So Ah. HLA genotypes. Um, and certain polymorphisms, uh, people, people, you know, the MTHFR variations, COMPs, CBS, GSH, GSTP1, all these SNPs that we know impairs detoxification pathways. Right. Um, and because of that, we know, you know, glutathione or metabolize heavy metals, um, harmful estrogens, xenoestrogens, all those sorts of things. If if we if our bodies are impaired and don't have that ability to detox and get rid of these things that you know, could be contributing to this illness, then ultimately we're going to get breast implant illness. So, like I said, it is a combination usually of toxicity and uh, these people having uh, patients having genetically impaired detoxification pathways that are going to make them more susceptible 
and the immune dysfunction and the immune dysregulation uh, caused by the breast implants because of, uh, you mentioned the word stress before, which just reminded me that those implants really are a stressor on the body. Yeah, absolutely. In themselves, just having this foreign object inside the body Mm. can be a stressor in itself, and which is why we see patients coming up with positive test results for CMV or EBV is because the immune system is so impaired at trying to attack this breast implant or protect itself from this foreign object that you are far more susceptible to getting all of these viral infections or the dormant infections begin to take over. Okay, so now we need to be able to test these people to see who is at risk. What sort of testing do you do? Well, there's a number of tests that I do, and it, it also depends on what that patient is presenting with. Yeah. Uh, but I often will test for uh, CMV and EBV to make sure that that's, that's been ruled out. I would do ANA, CRP, you know, all the inflammatory markers. I will test thyroids, uh, anemia, copper and zinc level, because I do find copper is often elevated in, in patients. Um, the hair tissue mineral analysis is usually quite important so we can uh, assess if there's you know, overload of heavy metals in the body or yeah. uh, mineral imbalances. And uh, the genetic testing is, is good if the patient wants to really find out uh, what is impaired and, and exactly target those impairments with specific nutrients. Gotcha. Okay, so can I ask, do you find any surprises? Like, for instance, somebody comes in rather sick they do the genetic test and their detox snips are absolutely fine. Do you find that they were happening? Like the, dare I call it the false negative? Is that what that be? Yeah, I haven't come across it yet. Mm. Not yet. Um, not to say that that wouldn't be the case, but um, no, not not as far as I've seen. I have not seen a patient come back with perfect genetic pathways, you know, detoxification pathways. Yeah. Uh, I just, just haven't seen it yet. Um but when it comes to false negatives and false positives, we do see that too. So when a patient is presenting with these autoimmune disease type symptoms and they we get the their um, antibodies tested, um, you know, the RA for rheumatoid arthritis, um, when we get these tests done, a lot of the time we find that they'll come back negative. But they're presenting with all of the symptoms and they're in excruciating pain. And they, they've no longer able to pick up you know, their car keys, or they're no longer able to go to work anymore and, and do the things they used to. So it's it's definitely an issue of false negatives and false positives yeah. as well. Yeah, you mentioned biofilms before. This is really interesting, and of course, this this is a risk with any implantable device or or object into the body, hips, valves, whatever. Doesn't matter. How do you assess that? At the moment, there's no other way that I'm aware of that we can assess that until you have the implants removed. So your surgeon right. and, and, and hopefully you, you know, have a surgeon that does somewhat will, will believe in breast implant illness and will definitely take the time to take samples yep. of uh, any fluid, a seroma um, around the capsule and then they'll have that analysed by a lab. So that is a way that we can test but for those patients that want to know before taking their implants out, no. Gotcha. Not that I haven't come across anything that will be able to do that. How common are seromas around these implants as a part of BII? 
I haven't seen them as overly common. What I do see is is mostly uh, pain. Pain is is quite common towards the end of you know say five five year period and and when women are explanting. Um, I myself had quite a bit of pain that has completely disappeared after the implants um, are removed. Once they're removed, right. yeah. Um, fluid. Look, it's. I don't have any statistics on that, but um, I have. I've had had. I have had a number of patients say, "Oh, there was seroma," and I have had many that say there wasn't. I didn't have anything like that, and my implants were completely intact as well. So it wasn't a case of all oh, my implants are ruptured, yeah. or all my patients' implants are ruptured, and that's why they're sick. Because that's actually not not always the case. You know, whilst the implants being ruptured can you know, they can cause their own a whole host of issues themselves and silicon traveling in the body and um, being sure. in the lymph nodes and um, and also causing a rare form of cancer now. So it's it's called breast implant associated anaplastic anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Right. It's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. So one of the <laughs> lymphomas, yeah. Um, mm. okay, so treatment. I mean, this I, I can just see this being a minefield. This you've got to truly personalise this, correct? Very much so. That's that's what the practitioner has to do. Really hone in on exactly what's happening in that individual person, because you could treat two breast implant illness patients, and they could be completely different in their symptoms. So. Treating, um, I do find that always point of detoxification, no matter what the patient is really experiencing, is important because we find that the impaired pathways is is such a common denominator. So in order for patients to recover um, after explant removal, detoxification is key. And that also has to do with surgery, the general anesthetic, all of the drugs that we have to take for surgery, and also for practitioners that want to support their patients before they have their implants removed. Mm. Uh, again, supporting the detoxification pathways uh, is, is what I focus on. And uh, antioxidants are, are a really big one for oxidative stress. So um, when it comes to also nutrients are often depleted because of oxidative stress. So we find you know, zinc, B vitamins, selenium, magnesium, you know, those are often low and depleted in patients because their, their body is, is really trying to mitigate that oxidative stress and, and all of these toxins and, and heavy metals. So um, replacing those I find is really important. Anything to support the liver, and acetylcysteine, the herbs, milk thistle, schizandra, you know, the lipoic acid, taurine, uh, those are really important. And also lymphatic support. Lymphatic support is, is another big one, which I find a lot of my patients have issues with. And uh, infrared saunas are one that I've had a lot of success with, telling my patients to make sure that they're uh, going to infrared saunas and, and sweating out the toxins. I find that they find symptomatic relief from I'm that. I'm so glad you mentioned because that was actually going to be a specific question. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Way uh, underutilised. Yeah, it really is. And my patients, they every time they go to sauna, they go, oh, my joint pain is so much better. Yeah, so uh, definitely infrared sauna should be recommended. Uh, dry skin brushing, my patients do do that yep. as well. Any of the lymphatic herbs, 
um, calendula, clivus, echinacea, and modulate the immune system if if that you know is likely an issue as well. So again, romania, echinacea, any of those herbs that will will do that. Um, of course, we want to repair the gut. That's always a key focus. So we know glutamine, zinc, uh, probiotics, or if the patient you know, has any bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, any of those sorts of things that can be common too. So I do I do always see patients will have gut issues with breast implant illness. I have not come across anyone who hasn't yet. So uh, we know gut is always key anyway. So treating the gut and then there's the viral aspect. So if the patient is presenting uh, with a viral infection, then the herbs that will um, assist with that any of the thuja, cat's, cat, cat's claw, licorice, andrographis, astragalus, any of those sorts of immune herbs, antiviral herbs are going to help there too. And um, obviously replacing any other you know, lost vitamins and minerals that are that are depleted that you've tested. Yep. Uh, magnesium, of course. What about uh, biofilm? Like is there anything you specifically do to um, help clear biofilms? Yeah, the biofilm is a difficult one, but it's not going to happen if the patient still has their breast implants. Uh, it's, it, you, you just can't target that area because, unfortunately, what happens is the body creates a capsule around these implants. And every single woman, whether they, whether they have breast implant illness symptoms or they don't, their body will create a capsule. Mm-hmm. So it's this scar, fibrous scar tissue that is created, and usually the biofilm is inside of that. Yep. And there is nothing that's going to be penetrating that. So, uh, you know, antibiotics aren't even, they're not going to go and get inside of that. It's just not going to happen even. So when the body, when the implants are removed, then we can target the biofilm. But again, I find a lot of the supplements I already mentioned are useful and I don't tend to specifically target the biofilm. Um, I tend to just do a lot of the immune support and the detoxification, and gotcha. I find that, that that clears. Yep. And what about, um, you know, the dumping, if you like, of toxins into the body without clearance? Is there anything that you do to ensure adequate clearance? Yeah. So I, because patients often do feel worse before they get better, and mm. we, we, we know that's often the case, yeah. I, I do like to use something to bind the toxins that are being released, uh, zeolite clay, you know, uh, any kind of um, zeolite clay that's been purified to help eliminate those toxins from being reabsorbed and, and to, uh, to leave the body mm-hmm. um, through the bowels, through the skin, through the urine, as we know. So I find binding the toxins does help my patients to reduce symptoms. And, of course, there's the big elephant in the room, psychological support. Yes, what that do you is do a big with this? one. This is, this is going to be a huge one because the whole point of women doing it was to feel better about their bodies. Now it has to be taken away. How do you get women used to not having that um, reason, if you like. Mm, yeah, it's uh, no matter how sick a person is or a woman is with breast implant illness, it's always going to be a difficult transition, like mm. you said, no matter what. And you know, ultimately, women get the breast implants because they they have a you know, low self-esteem or they, they want to feel better about their bodies. And it is a huge psychological adjustment mm. and often, often can come with depression or anxiety. 
Um, and I can tell you I've experienced the anxiety part myself. I've experienced the uh, post-operative uh, depression state of, oh, wow, this is a huge shift and um, trying to get myself out of that negative mindset, negative, you know, thinking of, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough now without these breast implants. I'm not pretty or my partner won't like me or I'm never going to get a partner or any of those things, those those beliefs that I, I suppose a lot of our patients with breast implant illness are going to going to have and going to experience. Yeah. So, look, psychology is always going to be helpful. People need to talk through it with a therapist. So I would refer on if that's the case. Um, I, I mean, I'm a yoga teacher as well, so I'm a big believer in doing alternative therapies such as meditation and deep breathing. So I would teach my patients when they feel that anxiety and that fear that yeah, our breath is is so important for changing our nervous system, yeah, the nervous system we're in. So we can relax the nervous system and overcome that anxiety by taking some deep breaths and becoming present. Um, journaling about our fears is also uh, one that helps my patients too uh, and realizing my health is really far more important than the way that my breasts look at the end of the day because I can't function. But a lot of the time women will have the surgery done because it just gets so bad. It gets to the point where they can't function Mm. and they just go, I don't care. I just have to do this. And the fear with, with women not having the surgery done is, well, what if it's not my implants? And yes, of course, yes. That's a big thing because of all of these symptoms, because of all you know, our doctors telling us, no, it's not your implants, and your surgeons will tell you the same thing. So it's it's a really big one where that, again, that little voice in your head has to, has to come in. And so uh, encouraging your patients to really quieten the mind and listen to that internal voice rather than the, the fear chatter that is, that is happening in that moment. Yeah, it's a real check-in sort of time, isn't it? And not notwithstanding that even people with partners and estab- you know, established relationships, established families, I guess I'm particularly established families and particularly if women have breastfed before and they're, you know, they're going on through their life, their body's going to change anyway. Their breasts do change even with implants. Um, and so I, I, I wonder about this, you know, it must be so hard for women to adapt to that change if the original reason isn't dealt with, you know, right back. Like, as you say, you've got to go right back to say, was this a breast implant giving me the issue? You've also got to go right back further and say, why did I need the breast implants? Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's that's the big thing. And it ultimately comes down, I find, to a lack of self-love. Yeah. So, and you know, it's, it's on some level, that's what we unconsciously believe uh, you know we're not we're not good enough mm. you know so honing in on that and allowing our patients to heal that that aspect of themselves and and to move on from that and and noticing those thoughts come up of I'm not good enough and um, you know no one's going to like me and whatever other thoughts that the patient has and for them to to recognize those thoughts coming up and then to actively go no I am, and this is a belief from, for whatever reason I've got from childhood or traumas that have happened in my life. Yeah. Um, and no, 
I am good enough. And so you have to actively, you have to be present. Ultimately, it always comes down to being present yeah. and not letting that talk take over. You know, because if it, if you do, then that's when you're going to wind up in, in that depression state. So um, it's really important um, giving your patients some tools in, in order to, to deal with that. And and if that's not an area that you you uh, practice or you know or deal in deal in, then refer to a psychologist or refer to a mind body uh, coach or practitioner or meditation you know, teacher or something like that. That whatever your patient resonates with, yep. that is going to help them through that journey. But obviously, there's going to be some women that really have a grief issue. They have a real issue. Um, a real reason for initially getting those implants. It was very important for them. Are there any alternatives that women can have instead of these breast implants? Yes. Fortunately, there is an alternative, and it's a pretty good alternative. Uh, It's fat grafting or fat transfer. So this procedure isn't without its own surgical risks, and um, I would encourage your patients to ultimately heal the underlying cause that they or why they felt they needed to enhance themselves in the first place. But if your patients do need something, you know, especially if they're a, a double mastectomy patient, uh, they, they may really need uh, something in replace of the implants, then fat grafting is a really good alternative. But gotcha. In, it involves having liposuction, and then the surgeon uh, very carefully handles the fat um, and extracts it and then injects it into the breast. Yep. So it, I suppose for women that have initially had surgery because they breastfed and their uh, breasts are no longer looking the way they used to and they are empty, um, then filling them up with a little bit of fat is is a good option. And like I said, it does come with its own surgical risks and, and liposuction has its own risks as well. So I'm, I'm not advocating that people should go and, and get this procedure done, but it, it is an alternative and it is reasonably safe compared to getting breast implants. So it's, it's not a foreign object, it's your own tissue. So your body's not going to have an immune response to their own tissue. And the only real risk of, of having this, not from a surgical point of view, but from a financial perspective is that unfortunately breast implants those are not going to be absorbed by the body they're going to stay there no matter how much weight you lose this fat uh, it does have a percentage that that will die off Um, so all of the fat that's injected it won't necessarily stay and uh, just like natural breasts would just like any other part of your body if you lose weight then your breasts will reduce as well sure where can women get further support i mean obviously you've learned a lot from online forums are there dedicated forums that are sort of well known if you like there are there are a few so there is a there is Australia and New Zealand breast implant illness support group and they have over 3000 members now uh, so that's that's the Australian one there, and um, I'm part of that group. And and you know, there's a lot of helpful information on there in just regards to uh, reputable surgeons, to you know, and and all of that kind of information. And you know, again, support groups uh, for you know, helping people through hard times with the breast implant illness. And then there is a larger group with around sixty thousand women. And it's a worldwide one, wow. I think, run by – yeah, it's a big group uh, – run by uh, some ladies in America. And I've also recently started uh, a group just to help women with the healing side because I found that 
um, it was constant questions on some of these groups of, of what do I do? How do I heal? How do I heal? And sometimes uh, women, you know, they've spent just spent $10,000 getting their implants removed and they're, they're strapped financially. Yeah. So helping a, a bit of support with just the natural healing side. Okay. Well, what can I take? What can I do? And then hopefully, you know, after a little while I can then see a practitioner to help me. So I also have a, um, healing breast implant illness naturally group that I've recently started and that I'm running and and helping with specifically the healing side. Great. As well. well, we can put those details up on the fxmedicine.com.au website for our overseas listeners and indeed our Australian listeners as well. Um, Great. I've got to ask, Alicia, how do you track treatment success? <laughs> Again, another hard hard thing to answer. I'll give you a give you a this is how we do it question uh, answer. Um, because it's so vast and varied, tracking success really comes down to uh, tracking the individual body systems that are affected. Yeah. So if the patient is mostly experiencing gut issues, then you know that you've, you've got to have some testing done around that and then you can retest if they had SIBO or candida you know, overgrowth or uh, whatever the case is, that we become susceptible to all of these things as our immune system is is uh, no longer functioning correctly. So um, the practitioner will really need, really need to hone in on what it is and then uh, what that patient is experiencing and then have the testing redone. So again, if it's the heavy metals or mineral imbalances, then having the HTMA testing done will be important and then you can retest in three to six months' time once the, the patient has, has had treatment. So, um, and again, of course, always we can track success on how the patient's feeling yeah. ultimately. Yeah. That's at the end of the day, that's going to be the most important thing. If patient's saying, no, I feel pretty horrible still, then, you know, there's something else that you, you haven't investigated or, or done. So, um, but if they're saying, oh, I'm feeling so much better, and I can guarantee you every single woman that has come to me that's had breast implant illness, I can't, I can I can tell you right now, I haven't had one woman say they haven't had some improvement in their symptoms. Right. I just haven't. Um, my, I myself have had so much improvement in my symptoms. Yeah. Um, a huge difference. And um, some of them I actually woke up the day after surgery and multiple things were gone. Wow. It, it, was, it was that quick. And I do find a lot of breast implant illness patients have the same experience. And this is obviously a chronic condition, so no one can expect to wake up the next day and feel 100%. Mm. Uh, that's not going to happen. But I can tell you all my musculoskeletal pain in my upper body was completely gone the day after surgery. So um, This is after surgery? Yeah. And the pain after is gone? <laughs> I was going to say, look, I'm sure the general anesthetic is something to do with it in the endone. Not, not going to lie there, but it, that remained the case once I was off the drug. Mm. So. Uh, wow. And I do find, yeah, look, I, I find women experience the same thing, even just something like uh, they had really bad brain fog, they couldn't concentrate, they couldn't retain anything, they couldn't remember where they put their phone or their keys or any, they, they just had the worst memory ever and they find they wake up from surgery and they that is completely gone. Mm. So everyone's different. You know, so again, these symptoms are so vast and varied and, and some people don't wake up and feel hundred feel any difference until they start detoxing and still they until they start treatment. Yeah. So um it is going to vary a lot, but 
I have not had one single woman with implants that have had them removed that have told me I don't feel any different. So the trick is to be the detective of change. Yeah, the important thing is really the, the practitioner asking, do you have breast implants or any other implanted devices? Look, I, you know what? I think this is a question that needs to be included as a standard question. Uh, what is your height? What is your weight? What is your age? And do you have breast implants? I, I would yeah. actually, you know, like we're concentrating on breast implants because this is your experience. But, you know, I mentioned um, buttock um, augmentation before. There, there's got to be other things, you know, penile extensions, things like that. Yeah. Um, Anything where there is an, a, a medical implanted device has the potential to cause harm and mm. cause immune dysregulation or to cause any of these things, you know. Yeah. So uh, definitely, I think it's a really, really important one that we often miss as a practitioner and uh, we, we don't even think about. And so having that on even just on your in on your initial consultation form, I think is really, really important. And and again, ask men too, because yeah. with the with a rise in plastic surgery, uh, men are getting pack implants. Yep. Men are getting all yes. these different types of implants. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I I know that I know of one man that has all these symptoms, the same as women, and he has pec implants because he had a, a, a deformity. Right. You know? I I know that men are out there too struggling with this. And whilst it's not as common, of course, because the rate of you know, women versus men having having implants is far higher with women, but men do have it too. So you can't just exclude men from this question too. Yeah, and the future. Um, is there attempts to systematize these symptoms, to, to clump them together and find out if there's any commonalities? Um, are the products available on the market now better than they were previously or do they still carry risks? The, the products, I can tell you, no matter what kind of device they are, you're always going to run the risk. Of, of having an issue. Uh, it's a foreign object in the body. I really don't believe that any foreign object is immune and safe to, to these complications. And so are they going to be safe in the future? I, I can't see it happening. I, I just can't. Um, does that mean that they they you know, that's not a possibility? No. Uh, but I just can't see that being, being the case. Um, and in regards to the symptoms, uh, Everyone is so individual that I just don't think that it's possible to, to clump them together and say, this is what we've got and this is, you know, this is breast implant illness. Yeah. So, unfortunately, when it comes to this illness, you have to be a real detective. Yeah. And listen to the voice. Listen to the voice. Listen to your patient. Alicia Habgood, thank you so much for taking us through this. This is a really interesting topic, um, obviously one that's really just starting to become known, at least certainly for me. I had no idea. Um, thanks so much for taking us through what has obviously been a confrontation for yourself, but you've you've turned that around to be, now be of service to others, and you've really, you know, it's, it's able to enlighten you to your career choice. I mean, that's a fantastic thing that's come of a, a really horrible thing that happened to you. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate everything. And uh, I've had a great time chatting to you. And I'm so happy that I'm able to share my message and, and get that out there and help more women and practitioners. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The seventh Bioceuticals Research Symposium is a unique opportunity to hear from world leaders in the field of integrative and complementary medicine. 
to be held from the 3rd to the 5th of May 2019. The symposium will focus on the latest research and clinical strategies for managing mood disorders, cognitive impairment and neurological disturbances. Keynote speakers will include Professor Dale Bredesen, whose research has led to new insights into Alzheimer's disease and has opened the door to a new therapeutic approach. World-renowned neurologist Dr Jay Lombard will demonstrate how he utilises genetic testing to improve neuropsychiatric conditions, including depression and anxiety. Pioneering dietitian Amanda Archibald, who's opened the door to the exciting emerging discipline of culinary genomics, and Dr. Brandon Brock, leading functional neurologist and nutritionist, who'll outline a unique and integrated understanding of neurology, blending nutrition, pharmacology, immunology, and endocrinology. Each expert will demonstrate practical approaches to applying this rapidly growing body of knowledge to create effective treatment strategies for even the most complex cases. For more information and to register for this event, visit the Bioceuticals website and click on the Education tab.